0: They can't. 8300.
1: 8300.
0: 8300. 8300. 8300. Hello. 830. hello. Yeah, what's going on, man? It's When he first went in, he saw them on the couch. Then that's when I saw the blood. And what you said, something about a bullet or a shell casing? Shell casing on the floor. That's when he realized that something wasn't right.
2: The safe came up missing, and the question is, who took the safe?
3: You got this falling out with Steve. You said you and Steve got into it. But now Steve's dead a week and a half, two weeks later. Steve went to make a deposit. That's how
2: he discovered that Gaddy had stolen the $13,000.
3: He was going to shoot that big motherfucker in the knees to bring him the size to kick his ass. He asked, did you kill my brother?
2: And the response was, no, but I have an idea who might be involved.
3: All of the evidence there makes him a suspect. Come on, come on.
0: Rob, tell
2: me what's going
3: on. Somebody's
4: been shot, 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 shot. This is Tim Rowan. Welcome to Fall of a Titan. On the afternoon of July 4th, 2009, Lucille McNair was at home at the ranch when she received a phone call from her daughter in law, Michelle. Michelle was apparently still gathering information, but she was calling Lucille to say that her son, Steve, had been shot. Lucille
2: wanted to know
4: what hospital he was in or what was his condition.
2: And Michelle's response was, they won't tell me anything. I don't know the data she was talking about, uh, but Lucille said, I'm on my way. And she called a young man who would drive her places and ask him if he would drive her to Nashville. And she had begun to pack. Then Michelle
4: called again and said that Steve was dead. That's Dr. Alvin Simpson, Lucille McNair's close friend. After he heard that Steve had been shot, he rushed over to Lucille's house to be by her side. When he arrived, Doc said that Lucille's eyes were red as blood from all her crying. They went into a bedroom, and Lucille said to him incredulously, Doc, they said it was some 20-year-old girl. Lucille McNair had her suspicions about that almost from the beginning. On a basic level, she had trouble believing that Jenny Kazemi, this petite 20-year-old girl, was capable of shooting her son four times. Then, shortly after Steve died... Lucille received an anonymous letter alleging that the police had pinned her son's death on the wrong person. It was a 12-page, single-spaced letter. And
2: whoever crafted that letter certainly felt that the girl was not the killer. And I had made a suggestion then that this letter be given to the FBI. I think I mentioned it to one of the detectives. And that's when I received this discouraging and disparaging remark, this is not a federal case, so you'll be wasting your time. And so the letter basically just said, you know, the girl didn't do it or I don't know. That, that was the essence of it. That's all that was really important to us anyway that, that you have somebody else because I think this letter was postmarked in Nashville. Who would take the time to write a letter that long other than somebody who could have had some
4: real insight about what was going on? I mean, anyone could have written that letter. Who knows how legitimate it was? Nevertheless, that letter fed into Lucille's suspicion that something here wasn't right. Lucille had even more questions after more details about the case came out. Eventually, Lucille met Vincent Hill, a former Nashville cop who started to investigate her son's murder case on his own. And as they started talking, Lucille made her stance clear.
3: And Lucille and I were sitting out on her porch, the house that Steve built, and we're just sitting out there to the two of us and she said, Vince, I don't believe this little girl killed my son. And I said, Lucille, I
4: I don't believe it either. Lucille would eventually hire Vincent Hill to investigate the case on her behalf. Look, I'll be honest. When I started digging into this case, Lucille's continuing belief that something was amiss, that grabbed my attention. It was one thing if Vincent Hill was nosing around this case all on his own, but Lucille had hired Vincent. She put her stamp of approval on him and his investigation. Even before Vincent came along, Lucille had begun to take steps on her own to find out what happened to her son. She wasn't the only one either. There were two people who took action on their own two family members on opposite sides of this tragedy who wanted to find out what really happened to Steve McNair and Jenny Kazemi. They were Steve's mother, Lucille, and Jenny Kazemi's sister, who spoke to me on the condition that we not share her name or use her voice. So we'll call her Amanda. They both had questions, they both went looking for answers. And both of their searches led to the same dead end. The Nashville Police Department From the start, Lucille McNair apparently wanted two things. She wanted to ask some questions of the investigators in Nashville, and she wanted to see the crime scene photos. Sometime around September 2009, not long after her son's death, Lucille arranged to meet with two Nashville PD detectives. Dr. Alvin Simpson wrote out questions for Lucille to ask them. After the meeting, though, Lucille was still not satisfied. They didn't answer the questions that I needed answered, she told Doc Simpson. Doc Simpson told me that Lucille then arranged to meet with the Nashville PD a second time. He said they promised to drive down to see Lucille in Mississippi and bring the crime scene photos with them. But Doc says that meeting was canceled. He didn't seem to have a clear reason as for why. When I asked the police about the canceled meeting, they indicated that it was canceled after Lucille tried to expand the meeting to include non-family members. At one point, as this stop-start was going on, Doc Simpson said he had a phone conversation with one of the detectives who worked the case. When I called him, uh, he had questions for me
2: like, why are you so concerned about the murder? And I had to say to him, I'm concerned because Steve was my friend, the McNair family is my Mississippi family, blah, blah. And I said, I have 28 questions for you that I need answered. And he said, well, I won't be answering those questions And I said something like, you might not answer them now, but you will ultimately answer the questions or somebody will answer the questions.
4: Finally, sometime around June 2011, about two years after her son died, Lucille McNair traveled up to Nashville for her second meeting with police, with the intent of seeing the crime scene photos. Accompanying her on that trip were Doc Simpson and three of Steve's former bodyguards. When the group arrived at the station, Doc says they were met not only by two Nashville detectives, but also a psychologist who worked for the department. They were suggesting that there might be some problems with Lucille
2: in terms of her emotions if she were to see the crime scene pictures. And Lucille kept saying, I gave birth to Steve. He's mentally there and will always be, regardless of what photographs I'm shown. But they would never let her see the real photographs.
4: Well, not all of them at least the police report indicated there were more than 500 photos from the Steve McNair case. But the attendees that day say they were shown only a fraction of that. Here's Chris Wall, one of Steve's former bodyguards, who was there at the meeting. We wasn't
5: shown all the pictures. Uh, they were numbered with a sharpie. Most crime scenes and pictures that I've seen have always been stamped, dated uh, the originals. They took out, even admitted they took out several pictures because they didn't want uh, to upset Mama Mac. But They didn't allow us to see all the pictures.
4: The police dispute this. They told me that investigators showed Lucille, quote, every photo we had. According to the Nashville PD, Lucille's group asked for copies of the photos, and that's where they drew the line. Whatever photographs the group did see raised even more questions, though. For one, the condo looked too clean. Doc Simpson told me that, judging by the photos, the crime scene looked staged. Chris Wall told me that it was the cleanest crime scene he's ever seen. He expected to see a lot of blood, a lot of disarray. Instead, everything in the condo seemed to be in place.
5: That apartment was crystal clean. It it was, everything was very neat. Even her handbag was sitting straight up. The trash can was straight up. The ottoman was square. Steve's shoes were still sitting side by side. There was nothing about that apartment that showed Uh, An evidence of of any type of major crime scene.
4: Is it possible that maybe the crime scene of a surprise murder-suicide would be, well, pretty clean? Sure. Absolutely. But here was the mother of the victim and her friends, and they were asking questions about the crime scene. They wanted explanations, and they found that for the most part, the detectives were cold, arrogant, and dismissive. Rick Bonner, another one of the bodyguards there, told me that at one point, after Lucille McNair asked a question, one of the detectives raised his voice saying, I'm telling you, that's the way it happened. This is how Doc Simpson described the meeting. They were very rude, they were very
2: disrespectful, and they wanted us to know emphatically that we were non factors, we did not matter whatsoever. And they were sticking to their story. And there would be no opportunity to compromise anything. And to me, any police department where you have a crime, particularly a murder, and you're not willing to accept any new evidence, shows cover up all day. All day.
4: Sure, the group had a lot of specific questions, questions that contradicted the findings of the Nashville Police's investigation. But they said that the detectives didn't even attempt to entertain their theories.
5: It really wasn't explained with passion and timeliness to his mother how it happened. It was a rush job of in your face, ma'am, once again, this is the evidence this is what happened there ain't no other way it could have happened. I'm the investigator and this is how I say it happened and that you know that's the way it is. there was no If you go to court on something, a a lawyer would get up there with a chart and show you every little detail how something could have done this or did that. And it just really wasn't, took the time to explain into details to his mother.
4: On their way out of the meeting, Chris and Rick joked that they didn't want to walk near Doc Simpson. The police might start shooting at him, given how aggressive he'd been. Afterward, the group still had a lot of unanswered questions. Some of Steve's friends and teammates had questions, too. The one I've heard most often, how is Jenny Kazemi, this five foot four, 127-pound girl, able to pump four kill shots into Steve McNair, apparently without any prior gun experience? Here's Spurgeon Banyard, one of Steve's college teammates.
6: My thing is, how is it that this
0: girl who's never shot a weapon before can kill Steve
3: as far as shooting him in both sides of his brain and in both chests. You're not going to do that because anybody who's never shot a weapon before, once they shoot it one time, they're going to be paranoid, especially a female.
4: At its core, it's a pretty sexist argument. Jenny was a short, lightweight female. How could she have handled a gun competently? But a few of Steve's friends, people who've handled guns before, think it's a valid question. Several of Steve's friends told me that they thought his murder looked like a professional hit a shooting that only a trained marksman could pull off. Remember, the police say Steve was shot four times, twice in the chest and once in each temple. In one of his books, Fitz and Hill suggests that whoever killed Steve McNair was following something called the Mozambique drill. It's a shooting technique in which the gunman fires two shots to the torso, what's known as a double tap, and then follows that with one shot to the head. The first two shots are meant to slow the target down, and the third shot is for good measure. Here's Mark Harper, another one of Steve's college teammates. I didn't think she did it. because the as simple the the double tap to the head just
5: doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then for somebody to shoot you twice in the head and then shoot themselves, that's just, that's overkill. That's what that screams to me, is that's overkill. That might be something else going on. It looks like professional stuff. You shoot people twice to make sure.
4: Steve's friends also have questions about the murder weapon itself. Chris Wall, for one, told me that the Braco Jennings 9mm, the gun found at the crime scene, is known as a cheapo gun. There was...
5: Just some question about how a piece of crap, little throwaway gun, 9mm gun, were so precise with these shots and these angles that it really, really looked like somebody knew exactly how to fire those type of rounds.
4: Vincent Hill writes about the Bryco Jennings 9mm in one of his books. He notes that it's not a very accurate gun and that it's prone to jamming. He writes that some former owners suggested they'd be better off throwing the gun at someone, rather than shooting it. It wasn't just the gun that was cheap, either. Chris Wall and Rick Bonner both told me that when they viewed the crime scene photos with Lucille, they noticed that there were two different types of bullet casings at the crime scene, brass and aluminum. Both men found that unusual. They told me most gun owners only load their weapon with one type of bullet. You don't usually mix ammo. Plus, aluminum bullets are cheaper. They're typically used for target practice. When Vincent Hale heard there were two types of bullets found at the crime scene, you can imagine where his mind went immediately. He thought, two shooters. The police report does note that, after an examination of the murder weapon, all the bullets came from one gun, the Bryco Jennings 9mm, that was found at the crime scene. But there was another gun in the vicinity of the crime scene, Steve McNair's pistol. The police said they recovered Steve's Glock 9mm from his Lincoln Navigator, parked outside the condo. And to some, that presents a sort of logic problem. Charles Patterson is a Mississippi State trooper who worked security for the Alcorn State football team back when Steve was in college. He's a family friend of McNair's, and he wonders, why would Jenny even need to buy a gun? She had to have known she could have just used Steve's.
3: Steve
0: kept a gun on him all the time. My thing was always, why would you go buy a gun if you're around somebody that much? And knowing that this person has a gun, and this person is supposedly sitting on the couch sleeping, Why would you have to have a gun when you know there's a gun
5: present in
4: the house? Say Jenny did use the Brico Jennings 9mm, the cheap gun she allegedly bought from Adrian Gilliam. The Lucille McNair group still had questions about the way in which Jenny carried out this murder-suicide. Or rather, questions about the sequence of events as they were reconstructed by the police. The Nashville PD said it appeared likely that Jenny had snuck up on Steve while he was sleeping on the couch. The police noted that his blood alcohol level was 0.15% nearly double the standard for legal intoxication, and that could have made him drowsy. Doc Simpson pointed out, though, Steve drank regularly and had a higher tolerance for alcohol than most people. He also told me Steve was generally a light sleeper. Very light sleeper
2: and, and somewhat guarded and paranoid about things because I can remember occasions at the ranch where I would get hungry like two thirty, three in the morning, and Steve would be uh, supposedly asleep in the recliner by the breakfast room. I would get food and go back upstairs. And at breakfast, he would say Doc was stealing food at 2.34 a.m. And I said, you know, you were supposed to be asleep. His eyes were closed, but he was not asleep. And if you walked lightly, that would wake him up even more. He kind of reminded me of a person
4: who had been in the military because he always had this awareness around him. Then the police said, Jenny shot Steve four times before positioning herself on the couch to McNair's left, in such a way that she would fall into his lap after she expired. Then she allegedly shot herself in the right side of the head. The police said that the bloodstains shown that Jenny's upper body was in McNair's lap before she slid down his leg and onto the floor. Listen to that again. The police are saying that after Jenny killed herself, her body flopped onto Steve McNair's and then tumbled to the floor and came to arrest at his feet between the couch and the ottoman. Vincent Hill thought that was a lot of movement for a dead body.
3: She was laying flat in between the couch and the ottoman. The science doesn't even do that. Once you shoot yourself in the head, that's a wrap. You're limp. You can't shoot yourself in the head and say, you know what, nah, I want to get up. I want to lay on the floor. You can't do it. You're done.
4: After all that commotion, the police said that the gun ended up under Jenny's body. But there seemed to be some ambiguity about where under her body. One of the officers on the scene wrote in a report that Jenny's hands and arms were tucked underneath her body and that the gun was found near her hands. Two other officers reported generally that the gun was found under Jenny's body, but they don't specify where. The summary report, though, said the gun was found under Jenny's head specifically. Vincent Hill has questions about that, too. Wait
3: a minute. You got three people looking at the exact same crime scene, supposedly, but they're writing different accounts of where the gun was found? And physically, I don't think A, that gun could have ever landed under her head because their story is she fell in his lap, then she gravity pulled her down to the floor. It just pulled her right down to where the gun was. What is it, Magneto? It just pulled her down, right? No. Like, if three people walk into the same crime scene, their supplement report should say the exact same thing. They may change a word here and there because not everyone speaks the same or uses the same word but the account of where the gun was
4: found should be the same. I asked the Nashville PD for clarification here. I sent them a list of the various descriptions of the location of the gun, and they told me that the gun had been found under Jenny's body in the upper body, head, shoulder area, and also near her hands. I guess they're saying that the way she was laying, her hands were near her head, and the gun was found in that general vicinity. Wherever the gun was, the police decided that it was unlikely to have been planted there because according to the summary report, quote, There was an impression outline of the gun in the carpet, created by the pooling of blood, meaning the gun fell to the ground and that Jenny fell on top of it and her blood pooled around it. To police, that indicated that neither the gun nor Jenny's body had been moved before they arrived. There was so much blood, in fact, that it may have contaminated evidence at the crime scene. When investigators processed the scene, they took swabs of Jenny's hands to test for gunshot residue. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation examined those swabs, and the test came back inconclusive. There wasn't enough to say definitively whether Jenny had fired the gun or not. A forensic scientist with the Bureau noted that there were trace levels of gunshot residue on Jenny's left palm. As for her right hand, her dominant hand, the hand you'd think she'd hold a gun with, nothing showed up. I wanted to know, what did trace levels mean in this case? What, if anything, could that tell us definitively? So I reached out to Jay Jarvis. He worked for more than 30 years at the Georgia State Crime Lab, and he does consulting now. His bio says he's testified as a gun expert more than 700 times.
0: As a forensic person, trace levels mean there's enough, obviously, that they can detect it, but it's in very, very minute quantities. You can pick up trace levels of of those elements by either firing a gun, handling a gun, or
4: being in very close proximity to when, when a gun was fired so that doesn't guarantee that she held the gun. Correct. In other words, trace levels of gunshot residue. That's not enough to prove Jenny was the shooter. It suggests she may have been near a gun when it was fired. That's it. But after the forensic scientists examined the swabs from Jenny's hands, she sent a follow-up letter to the Nashville police. In the letter, she explained that Jenny's samples had been completely saturated with blood. She wrote, quote, "...although blood does not interfere with the analysis a large amount can remove the residue from the hands. In other words, if there was anything incriminating on Jenny's hands, her own blood could have washed it away. You can see the problem here. One can take these test results and twist them in several different ways. If you're Vincent Hill, you point to the inconclusive test and say, hey, look, they don't even have the gunshot residue evidence showing Jenny fired the gun. If you're the Nashville police, the blood washed away any such evidence.
0: In this case, you've got, you know, you've got a scientist reporting... Or issuing a report that says it's inconclusive, but then you have an investigator, you know, interpreting that report in a way that's favorable to the what they think happened, I think is probably the best way to describe what's going on here. And I can understand, they've, you know, they have other evidence that leads them to believe that this was a murder-suicide, so, you know, I can understand why they would interpret that uh, test report in a way that's some kind of favorable to their theory. A forensic scientist could not say with absolute certainty that she got that residue on her hands from
4: firing that gun. And if Jenny did shoot the gun, she apparently did so while she was wearing pink shorts, a pink tank top, pink panties, and a pink hair bow. I asked Jenny's friend, Lucretia Polite, what did she make of this? Jenny being found dead wearing lingerie, basically. So
2: you got dressed sexy to shoot him and then... Kill yourself in cold blood? Oh yeah, that makes total sense. Like, ruin $900 Victoria's Secret, of course.
4: As for McNair, there was nothing particularly interesting about his clothing, other than the fact that he apparently had a pool of blood in his lap and he had a stream of blood going down his leg. When Doc Simpson saw the crime scene photos, he made note of the pool of blood. He asked the police about it, but he says they essentially waved him off. Then Vincent Hill told Doc about the rumor that Steve had been castrated. Here's how Vincent remembered it.
3: I got with Alvin because he was at least fortunate to see some of the crime scene photos. And he said, well, Vince, he said, there might be some truth to that. He said, because there was a stream of blood just going straight down Steve's leg like he was cut on the leg. And he, he said for the life of him, he never could figure out why that stream of blood was there. And he said, now it makes sense why that pool of blood was in Steve's lap. But, of course, Nashville police were saying, oh, that's because she fell into his lap, which, for argument's sake, let's say that's true. How do you explain the stream of blood going down his leg as if he was cut?
4: After hearing so much about this castration rumor, I tracked down the forensic pathologist who performed the autopsy, Dr. Feng Li, who's been working in Nashville since 2000. Dr. Li told me that not only did he perform the autopsies on both Steve and Jenny, He actually went down to the McNair's condo and saw the bodies on July 4th, 2009. I asked Dr. Lee about the castration rumor on two separate occasions, once over the phone and then again in person with a podcast microphone in front of him. The first time I asked him, he chuckled. He said, no, 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 that's a complete rumor. Then he said he wouldn't be able to tell me either way due to privacy issues. Now listen to the second time I asked him about the rumor. I asked you this before and, you know, I mean, it's a rumor and it's something you know that's gone around Nashville about that Steve was castrated when he was found dead, and I don't know. I mean, obviously it's not in the report, but
6: first of all, tell me what is castrated mean?
4: Castrated means meaning people different. It means his his penis was was cut off. Oh okay. Yeah,
6: that's complete rumor. But you know, you know, if I see that, I will describe that. But it's not uh, just complete rumor
4: so have you have you heard that rumor have you heard no no no.
6: nobody said anything
4: yeah but. I mean yeah so I guess people people talk but so what you're saying is you didn't you didn't see anything like that unusual right
6: right yeah, yeah castrate meaning is a different meaning to different people so that's why I ask you
4: oh well what's the other meaning
6: you know, the other means you know you cut off the testicles
4: oh well were they, had the testicles been cut off
6: no nothing Uh, They are all like normal. It's nothing like a rumor. I can only say that.
4: Okay. Is there there anything unusual about the body? No,
6: no, no, no.
4: I should note that at the time that Dr. Lee examined the bodies back in 2009, his boss was the medical examiner, Dr. Bruce Levy. The following year, in November 2010, Levy pled guilty on a charge of official misconduct after he was caught taking marijuana from an evidence locker at the medical examiner's office. The Nashville newspaper, The Tennessean, wrote that Levy's plea, quote, raised serious questions about the way his office secured and stored evidence. For the record, the official autopsy report noted that Steve McNair's genitalia were, quote, without trauma. Fall of the Titan is brought to you by The New Yorker. The New Yorker is an iconic magazine that represents the best writing in America today. I read The New Yorker every week. It's always full of deeply reported stories that you won't find anywhere else. In every issue, you also get poetry, fiction, and cultural criticism, covering everything from books to movies. I especially love reading the witty and insightful bite-sized stories in the Talk of the Town. The New Yorker has also ramped up its website. Newyorker.com now publishes fifteen to twenty news stories every day, which is great because now I don't have to wait a week to read the New Yorker when big news breaks. You shouldn't wait either. Go to Newyorker.com/titan. Listeners of this podcast save fifty percent when they enter the code TITAN. With this special offer, you'll receive twelve issues for just six dollars. Plus, get the exclusive New Yorker tote bag. You can choose between print, digital, or a combo, print and digital subscription. Subscribe to the New Yorker and read something that means something. That's 12 issues for $6 and a free tote bag when you go to newyorker.com slash Titan. A lot of these questions people have about the crime scene share one thing in common. They suspect that there was someone else in the condo that night with Stephen Jenny. To date, there's been no evidence that this was the case. But there is some evidence that that there may have been some suspicious activity around the condo in the early hours of July 4th. Fauzi Ali, Steve's personal driver, told the police that in the early morning of July 4th, 2009, he dropped Steve off at the condo sometime around 1.30 a.m. The police have maintained that the shooting occurred sometime around 2 a.m. Mr. Ali said that when he dropped McNair off, he parked Steve's Lincoln Navigator behind Jenny's Cadillac Escalade, and they were both facing the same direction. But then, when Ali saw images of the crime scene on the news, the Escalade appeared to have been moved. It was suddenly facing towards Steve's navigator. Beyond that, a surveillance camera at the radio station across the street from the condo seemed to pick up some interesting activity. That camera was facing the front side of the complex. McNair's condo was on the back side, and the camera was maybe 100 yards away, but it had a view of the driveway that led up to the condo. And after Steve McNair turned up dead, an engineer named Cameron Atkins went and looked at the surveillance tape from that night. Here's what Cameron Atkins told me he saw it was pretty
1: fuzzy and it didn't really show a good image of what was happening even then but because it was dark and that camera was really just supposed to see things in the generally lit area around the parking lot so not a lot that you could tell about it but I went looking for that footage on the hard drive and found something you know through the night that looked like you know some vehicles going in and out of that alleyway it really was an alleyway between two of the main buildings there the only thing I recall at this point, I can't tell you what time it was, but uh, basically it showed what I thought was a large black SUV. I thought it to be a Cadillac just from the, the lines of it. And uh, it went in and then it came back out. And I can't remember how much time transpired between that time, but uh, that seemed to be the time that the police were interested in.
4: He saw a large black SUV pull into the driveway, and then, after some time, he saw the same car leaving the complex. I requested a copy of the surveillance tape from the Nashville PD. The first thing that struck me was, the video footage they sent was missing large chunks of time. For example, it skips right from 1 a.m. to 3.15. All had happened during that two-hour window. According to the Nashville police, Steve McNair arrived at the condo sometime around 1.30 that night, and was shot dead around 2. The video does show what appears to be one car leaving the condo at 3.15 a.m., and then another car leaving at 3.30. Then the tape skips again to 6.37 a.m., and it's light outside. The Nashville police apparently didn't find that tape important, though. In their summary report, they wrote that they reviewed footage from the surveillance cameras in the area and found that most of the footage was not useful, with the exception of the video from a nearby law firm. In that video, they noted, didn't capture anything suspicious. Now imagine, all these questions, all these theories are swirling about, and Lucille McNair felt like she wasn't getting any closer to getting closure. Steve's death was obviously hard on his mother. His grave is only a few miles from Lucille's house, and there was a period, Doc Simpson told me, when she would visit the grave every day and cry. Then she and Doc would spend long hours at night talking about it all on the phone. Lucille would ask, why would somebody want to kill my son? And if that girl didn't do it, then who really did? Doc told me that at one point, Lucia was really in a deep depression. She said to me that
2: she would go through stages of depression and that one day she was driving and she just thought about, I would just run out in front of this truck and, and you know, and just end, end my life. Uh, she had gotten to that point. She was having those those episodes. Whether she was saying it in jest or whether she was actually serious, I think as a psychologist, I had a
4: duty to open a conversation about it. Meanwhile, Jenny's older sister, Amanda, was going through her own grieving process. As soon as the news broke that Jenny was dead, Amanda rushed to Nashville, and one of her first orders of business was meeting with the Nashville police. She had a lot of questions, but she told me the investigators weren't very helpful. She said they told her, She did it. You just have to accept what we're telling you. Amanda told me, quote, They weren't rude or disrespectful, they were just short and straightforward. They didn't help me get any closure or any answers. Amanda was hoping that maybe she could search Jenny's belongings for clues as to what really happened. But she said that when she got back Jenny's phone, everything was erased. I don't know whether that's entirely true. Vincent Hill showed me a letter that the Nashville PD apparently sent to the Kazemi family regarding Jenny's cell phone. In the letter, the police offered to arrange a meeting to show Amanda the information they downloaded from Jenny's phone but it doesn't appear as though that meeting ever took place. Amanda asked to see the crime scene photos, too. But she said the police told her, no, no, it's too disturbing. We don't want to disturb you. Which sounds similar to what the Nashville PD told Lucille McNair. She said they only showed her a picture of Jenny's corpse after it had been cleaned to identify the body, to confirm that it was her sister. That's it. Amanda told me that what bothered her the most was Jenny wasn't there to defend herself. Jenny was dead, and she didn't have a lot of supporters. She told me she believed the police took advantage of that to cover up the story, or just wrap it up. She said that blaming Jenny was the easy way out for the police. These are the kinds of things you probably expect to hear from someone whose dead sister is being blamed for murder. But here's her reality. The case against Jenny Kazemi was decided by the Nashville police. There was no Ivy League-educated defense team. There was no cross-examination. There was just four days of investigative work. That's not the same as months, years of trial, where every last bit of evidence and details held up to scrutiny by both sides, where someone else has a say. Amanda asked me, quote, don't you think it was too quick? It was very quick. They pointed a finger at her straight away without investigating the case. These kind of investigations come at great cost to the police department and the government, and they don't want to spend that money. That's what I'm thinking. Two people are dead. Let's just move on and get over it. Jenny's friends agree, this was way too quick. Listen to Lucretia Polite here.
2: It was such an open closed case. It's like they closed it before I felt like they were even able to do a proper investigation. There was no way that they could have done that that quick. You know, for something like this, this wasn't a normal civilian. Like this was a football star, you know? I just didn't understand how was that open and just smack
6: shut so quick.
4: The media, meanwhile, pounced on the narrative. Steve McNair was the slain local hero, and Jenny Kazami was the crazy, jealous mistress, the cold-blooded killer. Amanda wanted to try to combat that notion. She went in search of a lawyer, a good lawyer. She told me that she was more than happy to pay whatever it costs. She wanted to clear her sister's name, and she wanted to find out the truth. By then, she had already started talking to Vincent Hill, this private eye who shared her belief that Jenny wasn't the killer. Vincent recommended that she hire Paul Walwin, a defense attorney Vincent knew from his days working for the Nashville PD. Walwin told me that in those early days, information was slow getting out. But he started working his sources within the Nashville Police Department to see if there was anything he could use to change the narrative, see if there was any cracks in the case, see if there was anything the Kazemi family could cling to. Walwin told me that he'd been hearing things about the case before the Kazemi family even approached him curious things. I was started hearing little bits and pieces here and there and right away
7: I was like something's not right here. There was all these these rumors going around about the things that had happened, and how the bodies were found and whatever, but then some of the stuff that we everyone thought was just kind of like people just making things up as the information came out we we're like, "Oh, why did it take several hours before the police were called. How did this person think that they were just sleeping when there's blood splatter on the wall? How is, you know, all these weird things are going, like checks are missing, you know, money's missing. All, there's all these different things going on. I asked Wallen, what were these rumors that he was hearing? It was a mob hit and, you know, he, he was found, his genitals were cut off and shoved in his mouth. You probably heard that. Heard there was a gambling debt that was owed and... St- some things, people hadn't been paid off. We heard we heard that going around for a while. We heard that she was pregnant. That news wasn't going over very well. We also heard that, you know, there's maybe some sort of issue going on there at the house with some of the individuals that we're was friends with or whatever, and, and things had gotten, gotten sideways. So he had several different
4: things going on. Walwyn told me that he knew some of the officers who first responded to the scene. He said that shortly after they arrived, they were relieved by another unit. I asked the police about this, and they said that the standard crime scene investigators responded to the scene. Walwyn also said that when he spoke to some of his Nashville PD sources, there seemed to be a discrepancy between what they were telling him and what was later said in the official reports. I remember
7: that officers that, you know, were talking, generally speaking, suddenly stopped talking. Because some of them said some things were different than what the report's came out with later on uh, that was public and so some of that seemed a little odd why would the first officer at the scene have a different recollection of some of the things that came out in the reports once other people showed up because you have to understand the team is important to the city and you know there are officers and stuff that were assigned to the team and and making sure events happen like when the team first came to town i represented a couple titans players on like simple things like one had like a had a client that had a patronizing prostitution that was a Titans player and had a client that had a DUI that was a Titans player. And, you know, there's certain attorneys that, you know, would be involved with some of the Titans, but it ended up being like certain attorneys almost exclusively represented the Titans. And then certain police officers would make sure that things were taken care of and, and covered and make sure they were taken care of it when they went out or when they were out. You know, because they're a celebrity. You don't want any issues. I, I mean, I understand that completely because it's, it's a lot of money and revenue coming in to the city. So you, you see that sometimes things are handled differently. And I'm not, I'm not saying that something was done wrong necessarily, but it just seems odd to me in this situation how things were treated, seemed like they were treated a little bit differently than a normal murder case. Wallen says that when word got out that he was working for the Kazemi family, his sources dried up. People start clamming up because, you know, their jobs are at stake. So, like, one of the officer friends that had given me some information, suddenly he didn't want to really talk on the record about that kind of stuff. So the thing is, those people would have been subpoenaed if there was some sort of lawsuit or we found some sort of wrongdoing or, or something like that. But the thing is, at the point that we stop you know, and you stop contact, there's nothing to do. I asked Walwyn, what kind of legal action could the Kazemi family have taken? There's several people that could have been probably been sued if you felt like there was something, there was a civil action. But obviously, you know, you could file a lawsuit against the police department, you know, saying that they did a terrible job on the investigation or they're hiding information if you have some proof. But you've got to have something. You know, you can file. You can file against the police department, Metro Police Department. You can file against people individually. You can file against uh, the McNair estate if you think that whatever happened. You know, there's multiple parties, but you have to have something concrete before you go there, because all we have are like you know, you have smoke here. This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem right. Something doesn't smell right. But then it gets to a point where. An attorney needs something, usually that would say, okay, we've got something here. And then maybe that
4: opens up the Pandora's box, so to speak, where you can get some other stuff. The Kazemi family seemed to be running out of options, but they had one last route. Go to the media, defend Jenny, and raise some questions. Walwin says he talked to NBC and CBS about doing a national TV interview with one of Jenny's family members. NBC's Lester Holt was apparently ready to do the interview at a moment's notice. Baldwin thought an interview with the family may force the police to release more information about the case. But the Kazamis ultimately balked at this idea. At first they were going to talk, and then I think think there's two things going on. I think it was culture.
7: I think maybe three things. Culture, they were embarrassed that their daughter was in this situation, sister, family member was in this situation. And then I think the last thing is, is just pure pressure of let's just walk away that was the thing the family name was already getting out there and it, it was embarrassing to them I think in, a, in some ways embarrassing but in the same way I think the, the sister was the most she was the one that was speaking out saying this is not how my sister was you don't know you could hear the pain when, when we would talk she
4: was very very upset and distraught and just coming to grips with the whole thing the Kazemi family left town without doing the Lester Holt interview without doing any major interview at all That didn't mean that Amanda was done fighting, though. She stayed in contact with Vincent Hill as he really started looking into the case. Vincent told me that he communicated with her on a weekly basis for several years, giving her updates. Amanda told me that, at one point, she was very involved with the case. She provided Vincent with Jenny's phone records, and Vincent would talk to her about Adrian Gilliam, Robert Gaddy, and all these peripheral characters. She told me, quote, I was trying to connect the dots, but when you don't know these people, how can you connect them? Vincent and Amanda kept in frequent contact until sometime in 2016, when Amanda finally decided she couldn't handle talking about the case anymore.
3: She just said it was just too much for her to bear. And uh, which, you know, I understand, you know, I, I can't say I would know how to act or if I would act any differently if it was, you know, me. You know, for eight, nine years, people have been saying, oh, your sister's a killer. Like, after a while, you just get tired of the fight.
4: Amanda told me that Vincent had been encouraging her to talk to the media, to appear on a TV show, probably one of his true crime deals, but she was getting jaded about the whole thing. She told me, quote, I realized everyone has their own agenda. It wasn't necessarily to help me or to help us. After a while, I had to give up because I didn't want everything to stay alive in the media. Reading comments about my sister, about my family, about myself, it was nasty. It was hard to take. She tried forgetting about the whole thing, that is, until I found her on Facebook in July of 2017. I had started talking to Vincent Hill by that point, and he suggested that I reach out. I sent Amanda a brief note, and she wrote back the next day. She was polite and cordial, but also skeptical. She started by saying that she had no doubt that Sahel was a victim in this, quote, double homicide. Then she said, I understand that you're a reporter, and it's your right to write or investigate any case you wish, but I'm not sure how this report is going to benefit us or Sahel." She signed off, though, by saying she wanted to hear more about my story. In the end, timing seemed to work in my favor. Amanda had just watched a documentary about Amanda Knox, and it had brought back some old memories. Remember, Knox is the American woman who spent nearly four years in an Italian prison after being convicted in the death of a fellow exchange student. Knox was eventually acquitted in the case, and I think that stirred something in Jenny's sister. Later, after agreeing to a phone call, she told me, quote, I actually thought that if Jenny hadn't been killed that night, she would have ended up in prison, just like Amanda Knox. Because the media attention on the case was high, unfortunately, and the police wanted to give some answers to the media and the public, just to wrap things up. And who was a better person to point to than my sister? When Jenny ended up dead, Amanda said that it was much easier to paint Jenny as crazy and quote, blame everything on her. Amanda was also inclined to talk to me, it seemed, because there was a new development in the case something I'd shared with her about a peripheral character. A few months earlier, Casey Moreland, a General Sessions judge in Nashville, had been indicted on federal charges. Hear me out. You'll come to understand how this ties in. The FBI had been investigating allegations that Moreland had helped two women get out of trouble with the law in exchange for sexual favors. One of the women had died by an apparent suicide. On a side note, a few of that woman's friends have wondered too whether she really died by suicide or whether there might have been foul play involved and the other woman, the one who was still alive, she was cooperating with the authorities. That woman told investigators that Casey Moreland helped her get court fines waived, that he helped her get an interlocked breathalyzer removed from her car, and that he even intervened to get her out of a traffic stop, all in exchange for sex. That was just the start of it. When the FBI began looking into Moreland, investigators said he hatched a scheme to derail the investigation. Using an intermediary, he tried paying the woman to recant her allegations. And then, when that failed... He started orchestrating a scheme to plant drugs on her in advance of a premeditated traffic stop in hopes of destroying her credibility. But Moreland's accomplice flipped, and his plot was exposed. In the end, the FBI also alleged that Moreland had taken cash from a drug rehab program affiliated with his court. In May 2018, he pled guilty to charges of obstruction of justice, retaliating against a witness, theft from a federally funded program, destruction of records, and witness tampering. For all this, he's awaiting sentencing. Now, here's where Moreland fits into the deaths of Steve McNair and Jenny Kazemi. Remember Wayne Neely? He was one of the two people who found the bodies in Steve McNair's condo on July 4th, 2009. After Neely left the crime scene and started driving home, he called a friend of his to discuss what he'd seen. He called Casey Moreland. Moreland told police that he told Neely to turn around, return to the scene, and tell the authorities everything. Their call got interrupted halfway through, and they had to call each other back, but they spoke for more than five minutes over the course of two calls. That exchange is mentioned in the police report almost in passing. It's a footnote, basically. But now, with Moreland facing federal charges, that phone call took on a whole new meaning, at least in the eyes of Vincent Hill. When Vincent saw the Casey Moreland news, his first thought was, Steve must be talking from the grave. For years, Vincent has held this belief that the crime scene had been tampered with. Let's say it had been. To Vincent's way of thinking... Casey Moreland had the power to do something like that. He'd allegedly gotten a woman out of a traffic stop with one phone call, and then he made plans to plant drugs on the same woman and orchestrate another traffic stop. Moreland also had a history of abusing his power to help himself and his friends. In 2006, he was caught dismissing tickets for his pals. Three years later, he was reprimanded for using a court employee to do work around his house, on the city's dime. And in 2015, he's alleged to have intervened when his future son-in-law was arrested for a second DUI. When the arresting officer in that case asked Moreland's soon-to-be relative to rate his drunkenness on a scale of 1 to 10, the man responded, 1,002. After the man took a plea deal, Moreland waived his 10-day jail term. This all got Vincent thinking, and as usual, his thoughts took some conspiratorial turns.
3: It kind of makes you wonder, did even Moreland have something to do with this? Because if you start thinking bigger picture, like, who could tell Nashville police to do a cover-up Well, this high profile judge, and they're not going to question him because they know, well, I got to go to his courtroom. But now you look at his character, he was going to plant drugs on a female he was having sex with to shut her up, to make her credibility look bad. So we really don't know how that conversation with Neely and and, and Judge Moreland even went. He could have told him, well, you need to get someone down there to fix the crime scene, right?
4: I don't know about fixing a crime scene, but listening to Vincent go on about his theories, it reminded me of Paul Walwin, the defense attorney, and how he'd heard all these swirling rumors, how something seemed to be off to him, but how he knew he needed concrete evidence to really make an impact on the case, and how that evidence just wasn't there. I asked Amanda, what had her interaction with Walwyn been like? She told me she remembered visiting Walwyn's law firm, and she said that they had strongly advised her not to pursue the case. She said they seemed to believe that Jenny had not, in fact, murdered Steve, but that they had little chance of winning a case because of the, quote, involvement and influence of the Nashville Police Department. I sent Amanda a 2017 newspaper story I'd come across. Walwin had been issued a six-month suspension for misconduct, for waiting three years to file an appeal for a client who had been convicted of murder. It was the sixth time Walwin had been disciplined for misconduct. Amanda wrote back, quote, Judging by everything, I suppose it was our destiny to get screwed by everyone involved. The police force, the judge, lawyers, media, etc. She ended the message with an abbreviation. SMH. Shaking my head. Still to come, on Fall of a Titan.
5: There was so much stress going on in his life that he he just... Almost like he didn't care anymore.
4: He was acting mighty
2: strange, and you could see that something was bothering him very deeply. Everybody knows that Steve wanted a divorce from his wife. Steve was the one who was messing around. Mama Mac ain't got nothing to do with that. And why would you take anything out on her? That wheel is very important signed or unsigned I say man somebody is missing the Steve Money when
3: I dreamed they were just in the
4: club oh. dancing and laughing saying we got all the money now we got all the money now Hi this is Tim Rowan host of Fall of a Titan thanks for listening if you're enjoying the show please make sure you subscribe and leave us a review also be sure to check out our hub page at si.com slash mcnair where you can get documents, videos, and more material associated with the case.